the book of Esther. And while you're turning to the book of Esther, I figured I'd share a few, a few pictures of things that I did this past week being back in the Philadelphia area, as uh, I shared last week. I, sp- I lived a long period of my life in this area prior to moving, well, around the globe, I guess you could say. Um, but one of the things that I spent, I, I spent a lot of time in, a, in deep thought uh, as this was facilitated by me being in the area, uh, just thought and appreciation for uh, the Eagles' victory again. I figured uh, this was the time to do it, and so I did this. Hey, how did the Eagles sign get so big in the Patriots sign? Whatever, doesn't matter. Uh, last, uh, last, last week, actually, I, I, I left this uh, congregation in the afternoon um, and went to Calvary Chapel of Philadelphia, our sister church in, in, uh, in the Northeast, and taught there in the evening, as you can see on the slide, on Christ in Yom Kippur. And then after that, I actually flew to Louisville, Kentucky. And there I went to a conference called the Together for the Gospel Conference. There were about 12,500 people at the conference, as you can see in that picture there. Uh, it's a full stadium where the University of Louisville basketball games are. And I'll just tell you, if you zoom in on that picture, uh, you'll eventually see me, the guy in the white shirt, in that stadium. I, I'm serious. You would see me. I was there. I promise you. I was there. Uh, but the camera is not good enough. In fact, what, we di- what you see here is a panorama of that stadium, right? You're not able to see specific people, but you're able to see the big picture of what happened when I was in Louisville at the conference. So that's what we did with the book of Esther last week. We looked at a panorama We looked at at a big kind of overview of what went on, the main points of the book. But today, we're going to do sort of what's up here on the right-hand side, or that is your left. We're going to zoom in on one character. We're going to zoom in on Haman, or Haman, as many of you say it. And we're going to focus on his role in the narrative relative to the king. And as we did this broad overview last week, covering a lot of the books, we actually didn't focus very much on chapters 5 and 6, which are going to be the focus of our study for today. So if you're in the book of Esther, please turn to chapter 6, which is where we start. We're going to examine this particular, we're going to study this particular scenario. We're going to zoom in on this one character, Haman. Chapter 6, starting in verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigtana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Ammon said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Ammon said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, 
Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let him be led on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, this shall, thus, it, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Let's pray. Lord, again, we give you thanks for the great privilege it is to be able to open the scriptures to be able to read from the scriptures and to be able to expect to hear from you from the scriptures. For those of us that have put faith in you, Lord Jesus, we, we pray that right now, that you would speak to us, that you would speak to us individually as well as as a group, as, as well as corporately. Help guide your church to glorify you through our actions, through our thoughts, through the condition of our heart. Lord, convict where you need to convict and encourage where you need to encourage. You know the situation of every single person here. Lord, we pray and petition that through your word you would minister to all of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Sometimes in life, things turn out to be the exact opposite of the way in which you would expect them or the way in which you've planned them. And this is particularly evident when pride is involved. Now, this isn't an axiom. It's not like bad things always happen to people that are prideful. That is, you can see every bad thing to ha that happens to people that are prideful. No, that's not it. But sometimes, sometimes, in fact, we don't even see pride in ourselves or in others. And sometimes we don't see the consequences of the pride immediately in ourselves and in others. But we do know that there is a biblical principle at work here when it, as it relates to pride. God hates human pride. He hates it. He doesn't think it's funny. He doesn't think it's cute. He hates it because it drives us away from him by encouraging us to misperceive ourselves. It encourages us to misperceive who we are in light of our God, and it robs God of his rightful glory. Now, before continuing to talk about pride, it's important to understand exactly what we're talking about when we say the word pride. Let's start with what we're not talking about. We're not talking about consciousness of one's own dignity. That is, people are made in the image of God, and God has given each and every single one of us gifts and talents. And there indeed should be a deep satisfaction in recognizing God's empowering us to perform, perform certain tasks or to be good at certain things. And we do this for his honor and for his glory. And in that sense, we can even say that we are proud of ourselves or we are proud of our children or we're proud of our spouses. We're proud of our mentors. We're proud of our mentees. 
When human beings act in accordance with the gifts that God has given them, we act in such a way that is indeed worthy of honor and respect because we are bringing positive attention to the God that created us and gave us those giftings and gave us those talents. And in this sense, it is a blessing to be deeply pleased or even proud of one's achievements or, or qualities. And so we're not talking about that type of pride. We're talking about the type of pride that we see in Esther chapter 6, exhibited in Haman, or through Haman. See, what is biblically forbidden is elevating one's satisfaction of his or her achievements to the point where they are not, he, or he, he or she is not charitable toward other human beings. It's not loving toward other human beings. What is absolutely forbidden, biblically, is taking credits for the achievements that we've accomplished as a result of the gifts that God has given us. What is absolutely forbidden by the scriptures is using those gifts that God has given us for the purpose of bringing glory and honor to him in order to outright justify ignoring him. Now that's lunacy. The Apostle Paul said in the book of Romans, he said this in the book of Romans, for although they, knew, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Human pride has the, ability to be, be able, has the ability to manipulate the faculties of intelligent human beings to the point of extreme foolishness or irrationality. See, using the giftings that God has given us, and in the, in the context of Romans, this, this whole idea of worldly wisdom or even intelligence, we could say, using the giftings that God has given us to increase our worldly standing without Recognizing him is unmitigated insanity. It's extremely foolish behavior. Why? Because human pride has the ability to be able to lead humans to the point where they cannot think well. And we know that this is culminated in denying God and denying the work of God in the world. As the scripture said, it says, it's the fool. It is indeed the fool that does not recognize that there is a God. Throughout the book of Esther, Haman is depicted as a prime example of a case in which pride led to utter foolishness, which led to his personal demise without the recognition of God. Now, as we talked about last week, the name or the title of God is not mentioned, are not mentioned in the book of Esther, nor is God, I guess we could say, overtly present in the book of Esther. However, there is certain rhetoric, there are certain words and phrases, and there are certain literary techniques apparent in the book of Esther, in this biblical book, that suggest that the author may have been alluding to agency behind the actual events in the narrative. For example, look down at your Bibles again in, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. In this particular passage, we encounter the king not being able to sleep. The reason for him not being able to sleep is unstated in the text. But this whole idea of the king not being able to sleep or the king not sleeping technically reads in the Hebrew, the king's sleep wandered. Now what's interesting about this is that you and I know that sleep doesn't wander. So the king 
who is depicted as the most powerful person in this whole book of Esther, who rules, as we read in chapter 1, over 127 provinces and gathers all of the women in the kingdom that he wants, this king cannot even control his own sleep schedule. His sleep wanders. His sleep wanders. Now, the simple fact that the king couldn't sleep, the simple fact that his sleep wandered, it fled from him, attests to the fact that there is an unmentioned agency behind and controlling the events of this narrative. The God of the universe was behind the king's sleeplessness. The God of the universe, whose universal dominion, authority, and sovereignty absolutely trumps the earthly kingdom of, Has of Ahasuerus, that God has caused the, the sleep of the king to wander. The king's not as powerful as he thinks. He cannot control his own sleep schedule. And in verse 1, we read that the books were read, or the chronicles were read to the king as a result of him not sleeping. Well, read is a passive word. It wasn't like the king got up and took the book and took the initiative to read these books even, even and find out the following information for himself. But the readers of the king's court, the lectors of the king's court, were the ones that actually even brought this information to the king's attention. That is the subsequent information in the chapter. They were the ones that brought it to the king's attention. And this language, again, indicates that the king, the person who's depicted as the strongest earthly power throughout this narrative, this king is completely unassertive in this situation. Now, before we continue, friends, let's remember that one of the primary ways that we can avoid struggling with pride is to simply but repeatedly admit that we are absolutely not as powerful as we think we might be. In light of the king not being able to sleep, not being able to control his sleep schedule, not even bringing the rest of the information that we're going to read in the chapter to himself, we see an example of the most powerful person really not being as powerful as they might think. Regardless of what our earthly positions and our earthly titles are, we are not nearly as powerful as the kingdom that we sometimes set up, set up for ourselves. That is, we sometimes set up kingdoms for ourselves in which we are eminently powerful. Now, friends, I know this. I have position. I have title. Everyone in my position with my title struggles with this. In fact, someone came up after the last service and said, you know, I think that it's ironic that you're speaking about pride and your, your web page is on every single one of the sites or the, the, the slides. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Now, by the way, that's there for you to stay in touch with me. But I get this, positions, titles, building a kingdom around oneself. The powerful king in our passage was not only devoid of the capacity to control his own sleep cycle, but he was completely unaware of the fact that one sleepless night, one sleepless night would literally change the course of human history because of the agency behind the events. And you might be thinking, hold on a sec, you might be exaggerating here, but it actually can be argued that chapter 6, verse 1, and the sleepless night of the king is the crux of the entire book of Esther. Because this one sleepless night would ultimately lead to the preservation of the Jewish people, which we talked about last week. And from the Jewish people, Jesus the Messiah king came. He entered into the world and thereby salvation for all who would put faith in him. So this night changes everything from this point onward. But again... This powerful king knows none of this. The annals are read before the king, and in verse 2 we read, it was 
found written. Again, it was found written. Not the king found, not the scribes discovered. It was found written. It was found that Mordecai disclosed this assassination plot against the king. And it was communicated with the king that, contrary to the Persian way, nothing had been done in order to honor Mordecai for his faithfulness to the king in revealing this assassination plot. Now, what's important to note about these initial verses of this chapter, the initial verses of the chapter, is that this language that begins the story begins the story in such a way in that no one can take credit for what comes next. Only God can take credit for this. And we see this through the passive language in the first few verses. These these verses in which no one can take credit for the subsequent events foreshadow the following verses in which we see Haman, Haman, striving to bring glory and honor to himself. Now, Haman striving to be recognized in his position of power was something that he actually started in prior chapters, which we surveyed last week. In fact, Haman's pride had driven him to a point of irrationality. It had had driven him to the point where not only did he want to kill Mordecai, but he wanted to kill all the Jews. And now in our text, we read that it had driven him to the point where he wants to kill Mordecai immediately, not even on the day that was appointed for the murder of all the Jewish people. And it just so happens that he was on his way to petition permission from the king to murder Mordecai prior to the determined day in which all the Jews were supposed to be murdered. It just so happened that he was on his way to ask for permission when the king was pondering what he should do for Mordecai as a result of Mordecai revealing this assassination plot. See, Haman's desire to kill Mordecai prior to the appointed time is outlined in chapter 5, starting in verse 9. So if you want to look to chapter 5, just maybe on the next page, verse 9 records an occasion in which Haman, leaving the first banquet that Esther had thrown for him and the king, encounters Mordecai. And Mordecai does not respond to Haman the way that that Haman thinks Mordecai should. And, and, and upon seeing Mordecai not bowing down to him, Haman becomes outraged. And arriving at home, he summons all of his loved ones, including his wife Zeresh. And he starts to brag about his fabulous, fabulous wealth. His large family, which, which he, you know, the text says he has 10 kids. I mean, it doesn't say anything about his daughters. Who knows how many children he had, Right? He brags about this, and he brags about seemingly, you know, these children indicate that his name and his title and his position will be passed on for multiple generations. And he brags about his position of power within the kingdom in verses 10 through 12. And after bragging about all of this, all that he had, he says the following. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. That is, all of these wonderful things that I have in my life, money, a good job, the best job in the kingdom besides being the king, a beautiful family, all of these things cannot give me the type of pleasure or attention that I want based upon who I consider myself to be. Wow. Does this sound familiar? Do we ever think this way? Let's just consider a second, for a second, the amazing blessings that Mordecai actually had, regardless of his character, right? 
He had a huge family. What a blessing. He had a lot of offspring. What a blessing. He had the best job in the kingdom. What a blessing. And he had loads of money that came from that. What a blessing, right? Family, a great job, good money. These are absolute blessings when understood in light of God's plan to use all worldly things to bring glory to God. However, when we desire to use these things, the things that Haman bragged about, when we desire to use these things to bring attention to ourselves, like Haman, we will never be satisfied. We'd have all the blessings in the world, like Haman, all the blessings in the world, but there will always be something or someone or so something out there that we will aspire to subject to ourselves. Pride facilitates greed. It facilitates covetousness. It facilitates an overwhelming desire to dominate in all spheres of life. All of these are corollary issues. Here we have the case in which Haman, right, let, this led him, is kind of this kind of insanity led him to heed the counsel of his wife, we see at the end of chapter 5, and to build these very high gallows in order to have Mordecai killed as an example, a public example of the dire consequences of not bowing down to him. But this hubris, this pride, leads to one of the most hilarious and ironic scenes in the entire Bible, starting in verse 5. As we read through, as we think through this, think about this as literature for a second, okay? We as the audience, we as the readers, we know what, what, wicked, what wicked Haman has done. We know chapter 5. We're reading through chronologically. We see, we get to chapter 5, and we see that Haman wants to murder a man simply because he would not bow down to him. And not only that, but here comes the insanity, not just because he wouldn't bow down to him, but he wants to murder all of the people group of this particular person that would not bow down to him. That's insanity. In all of the kingdom, right? And so in order to do this, oh, oh, and by the way, now he wants to murder this man before the appointed time. And so in order to do this, Haman builds these ridiculously high gallows. Some, some of your Bibles say 50 cubits. That's about 75 feet high. And he does this in order to hang Mordecai on as a public example. I mean, he couldn't wait. Mordecai was set to be killed immediately. That's what he wanted. And so Haman enters into the king's courtyard to ask permission to kill Haman at the same exact time that the king was considering what he should do to honor Mordecai. Now seriously, okay, as the reader, this is, this is extremely amusing. This is amusing. Not only is this kind of entertaining literature, but it's ironic in the sense that this is the exact opposite of what we as the readers would expect after having read verse 5. In, after having read verse 5, what would we expect? We would expect there to be more bloodshed. We would expect Mordecai to be killed. Why? Because Haman had already received permission to kill all of the Jews, right? And he built these gallows and he's second in command. Of course the king is going to give him permission to kill Mordecai before time. But as the divinely inspired word of God, right? This literature is the divinely inspired word of God. We see that these literary techniques of humor and irony are here so that we can observe how God frequently handles situations in which there are prideful people. Many times, though again, not all the time, God turns the plans of the prideful on their own head. And in this case, where God is not overtly present, the writer depicts this principle through the circumstances of the narrative. 
Now, this humor continues, this irony continues, and it actually gets better from a literary perspective. Look at, look at verse 6, chapter 6, verse 6. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Now think about this from our perspective as the readers. Haman enters into the, the palace complex. The king sends for him and asks him, who, 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 what, what should be done for a person that the king desires to honor? Now, Haman says to himself, some of your Bibles say, but the Hebrew actually says he said to his heart. Now, notice what Haman is doing here. He speaks to his own heart, or he thinks to himself, whatever the translation is. Technically, it's he, he speaks to his heart. He thinks to himself and encourages himself to hear exactly what he wants himself to think, despite the fact that it is not reality. He imagines a reality that he wants in which he is glorified. And so he goes through and he makes a list of the things that would bring honor to himself, demonstrating how he views himself. He petitions a royal robe, a royal horse, a royal crown. And then he desires to be escorted around the city by a representative king, actually in the most prominent areas of the city, so that all might see him. And then he declares that this king's representative, the king's representative would shout his praises as they ride around the city. Haman literally wants all of the senses of everyone in the city to be overwhelmed with his presence. Now, before we get ahead of ourselves, and before we simply say that guy was crazy, how many times have we thought that there should be no one more honored than ourselves? Oh, maybe not in the same way Haman did, of course. None of us are riding around this area on horseback, the center city of Philadelphia on horseback, asking to be honored. No, 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 that's not, that's not how we do it anymore, right? But how many times have we thought in our hearts, spoken to ourselves in our hearts, and told ourselves, created a reality in which we should be the most honored person in our jobs, on our sports teams, in our classrooms, only to figure out that there may have been someone that was more honored or maybe even better at a particular task than us? us. How many times have we thought as, as parents, and this one kills me, I think about this as a parent, how many times as parents have we thought that our children should give us honor and glory, particularly in front of their friends or their teachers, to find out, just to find out, that we actually really give ourselves more credit than we should. Why? Because any time we nurture our children, it's grace given from God to be able to represent who he is to our children. This is not, this shouldn't be an activity in which we bring honor and glory to ourselves and we shouldn't expect it. As we read through this narrative featuring Haman or Haman, we see that this desire to be recognized, it creates an imaginary world in which we, we are the center of this imaginary world and in which we are perpetually recognized or wanting to be recognized. And more often than, than not, when we create this type of imaginary situation where we presume necessary admiration upon ourselves, we are terribly disappointed when we don't get what we think we deserve. And we continue in this cycle where we refuse to humble ourselves 
And we get to the point where we're willing to act out more and more and more and more to the point actually of insanity in order to receive the accolades that we think that we deserve. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to me. I'm speaking actually to my own heart as well. This is us. This is the human condition. But regardless of how much we create this imaginary world for ourselves through our pride, we can eventually count that sometime at some point in reality hitting us. And this is exactly what happened with Haman as we read at the end of chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his, and his wife Zeresh said to, the, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Now I want to reiterate. I'm not saying, nor does the text say, that the book of Esther invariably teaches that this type of embarrassment Always, always comes with people who struggle with pride. That's not the main point of the text here as it fits into the narrative, as it fits into the entire canon. But we do see that biblical principle again, that God absolutely hates human pride because it is inherently egocentric. And as it is inherently egocentric, it pulls us away from him. And it endeavors to strip God of the glory due to him. And so many times, in order for God to bring human pride to light, he does use this concept of reversal in which there is an abrupt change in the fortune of people, in people's fortune or personal lives in order to bring out a proper response to him, in order to humble someone in his sight. So you might be thinking at this point, okay, so we've gone through, I get it. We, we have this tendency as human beings to be prideful. Okay, the word of God has helped me understand this tendency toward pride. Well, what should I do when I sense that? Well, unfortunately, in this text, or even in the book of Esther, we do not have a paragon. We do not have a great example as to how to handle this issue of pride. I mean, we have it pretty obviously before us that, the, that Haman indeed did struggle with this issue. Not struggle, but was given over to this issue. But we don't have a paragon as to how to handle it. But there are a few biblical principles that are immediately ap applicable when one starts to sense that they are creating a world in which they are glorified, in which they are the center and desire positive attention so that they might take glory in their lives. First thing that I'd like to say is that this issue of pride is one of the major reasons why people do not humble themselves as they must before an almighty God and, and accept what God has done through the person and the work of Jesus, because in order to accept that, one must recognize their position before God as, as completely low, may he increase, and may we all decrease. And so if you're here today and you've, you've never, ever taken that step, if you've struggled with pride for whatever reason, I encourage you to, 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 to think through this, to, to, to speak with someone that you've seen on stage, to speak with one of the, the pastors here, because pride is indeed one of the major reasons, one of the major things that prohibits people to coming to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus. But for those of us that are believers, when we sense this issue of pride, when we sense our struggle, this struggle starting to emerge, immediately I would call us all to pray. Why, right? Why? 
because praying helps us remember who we are in the eyes of a living God and who we are before that living God. Prayer helps us realize that who we are on the face of the earth is not worthy of recognition in light of who God is. Prayer redirects attention to God and glorifies God. Prayer also leads to repentance, if we must repent. If we're in a situation where we know that we've permitted pride to overcome us, we must repent. Prayer. Additionally, we should meditate on the word of God. Meditate on the word of God. Meditating on the word of God reminds us that only God deserves glory. That is the message. Jesus is our perfect example here. When Jesus was tempted to bring credit to himself or to take up earthly power by rightfully being given all, by, give, by being given all that was rightfully his, what did he do? He cited the scriptures. He went to the scriptures. Familiarity with the character of God through the scriptures is what Jesus shows us, helps us stray from the sin of pride when tempted. Familiarity with the character of God. Now, don't get me wrong, friends. I am not saying that we shouldn't be prideful because bad stuff's going to happen to us. That's actually not what I'm saying. That's not even the point of the text. Now, by the way, this, very, this may be the case, right? I mean, let's be honest. In many cases, people that are prideful are indeed humbled in very drastic ways. But that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that when we are prideful, we rob God of his glory. When we strive to bring attention to ourselves through the gifts that God has given us for his glory, and when we strive to, to bring attention to ourselves and deny him in the process, we deny the very reason that we are upon this earth, which is to bring glory and honor to him. Let's pray.